Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. And don't forget, Unchained is hiring. I'm looking for a remote editorial assistant to start working later this summer. This role handles numerous editorial tasks from booking guests to proofreading to social media and deals with everything from the show itself to the show notes to the newsletter. If you love crypto and have journalism experience, get in touch. There's a link to the job posting in the show notes. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. The topic for today's show is yield farming. Here to discuss are Dan Elitzer, investor at IDEO Collab Ventures, and Will Price, data scientist at Flipside Crypto. Welcome, Dan and Will. Hi, thanks for having In the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of people, particularly in Ethereum and DeFi, going crazy over this yield farming craze. It kind of started with the launch of the Comp token on June 15th, when people could begin earning Comp for borrowing and lending tokens on the platform. And before launching this liquidity mining scheme, there was about $100 million locked in Compound. And now there's about $650 million. Or, or I think 600 million as of the time of this recording. So let's break down what this trend is. Um, there's kind of a few different ways of looking at it. And I think you, there's one way of looking at it, like from the protocol's perspective. So can you describe that? Like when a protocol maker sets up a liquidity mining scheme, why are they doing that? What do they hope to get out of it? And why don't we, um, for audio listeners, Dan, why don't we start with you so they recognize your voice? Sure thing. Sounds good. So um, I think the important thing to understand with liquidity mining is that there are multiple goals here. So one of the goals is just to decentralize governance over the protocol. And so one of the reasons why Compound is doing this, Compound Labs that created the initial version of the Compound protocol, is they want to make it truly decentralized so it remains permissionless and remains censorship resistant. And so the best way for them to do that is to actually give ownership over it, or at least over a very significant piece of it, to the people who are using the protocol. So that's one piece. The other thing is because they're giving ownership over the protocol and there is perceived value to that, uh, that effectively subsidizes both the lending and borrowing rates on Compound. And so this is going to encourage a lot more activity. As we, as you noted, there's been uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of additional capital that has flowed into Compound and a lot more borrowing demand that has resulted. And one of the things that we can go into is, you know, how much of that is real net new usage that's going to stick around um, as this kind of levels out over time. Uh, but the goal is to actually pour rocket fuel on what was already one of the most successful protocols in DeFi. And Will, how would you describe it? I would echo a lot of Dan's points. And one thing that I would add 
is that I don't think that anybody anticipated the comp token being as valuable as it is. In fact, um, I believe right now it's about 10x the value that the original liquidity pool was launched at. And as a result, we're seeing all sorts of contrived and inorganic behavior by users who are attempting to maximize their rewards for using the token uh, for using the compound protocol in the form of governance tokens. And so uh, I think a lot of other projects um, are taking notice and are, are likely to use a similar distribution mechanism in the future for their governance rights. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that Dan actually started his answer with the governance piece, because in a way, I actually feel like that's sort of and to call it like a front is too strong, but um, I actually feel like, you know, this idea around bootstrapping liquidity is kind of more of what the at least at least the initial impetus was um, or and maybe I don't know about for compound, but especially for some of these other ones also that are looking to do this. Like they just want to have, you know, a lot of um, assets, you know, well, in this case, because it's a lending protocol, they want to have a lot of assets for people to lend and borrow. Right. Um but then, yeah, what has ended up happening is like the users, as Will pointed out, they have a really different goal out of it. And, you know, as you started to talk about, like they're trying to just maximize their earnings. So can you just describe for me a little bit more from the user's perspective, kind of what this means for them and what they're trying to get out of it? Well, I think in these early days, uh, it really is about uh, users getting a bonus for using the protocol. Right. I don't uh, I, I don't think that in the long term future for compounds that most people using compounds will even need to be aware of the existence of the comp token. Right. If if compound achieves what I think a lot of the, the builders and backers hope it achieves, then it's handling tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, maybe more than that. Right. Let's get crazy. Uh, but in that future the vast majority of people interacting with it are not needing to think about comp as a token. Uh, so this is something that's on the mind of the early adopters who see an opportunity to have a piece of something that they view as being very valuable in the future. It subsidizes their rates right now, but I don't think it's really a core part of the long-term roadmap for Compound to have everyday users needing to interact with the comp token. Totally, and I agree that that is the uh, long-term goal. Uh, and the analogy from the physical world would be that a holder of an index fund wouldn't necessarily be voting their individual shares and a custodian like BlackRock would be doing voting on behalf of their users. And that's likely to be the case for a protocol like Compound if it does wind up with tens of billions of dollars in assets under management. Well, I would take it a step further and, and say it's in some ways it's more like I can you know, buy Nike shoes without uh, owning Nike shares, right, um, is ultimately where we're headed. But it's saying that this is a product where it is valuable to have this be decentralized and have it uh, spread out. And so part of that bootstrapping um, is distributing that ownership across a wider range of people. Absolutely. But to your point, Laura, uh, there is a dynamic at play where uh, increasing the, the assets being lent and borrowed on Compound or the assets under management on a protocol like Balancer, which has a similar scheme, uh, helps them reach the network effects required to achieve exit velocity, so to speak. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I still... Um... 
I guess I feel like um, in a way, the way that you're describing it, it's almost like a little bit more noble than what's actually happening. Cause I feel like the users, um, are primarily just trying to maximize yield at this moment, right? And they're, um, you know, borrowing assets and then relending them just to earn more comp. And so, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, that's the pretty much the definition of yield farming. And they're doing this sometimes with up to like 4X leverage. So, I mean, wouldn't you say that upfront close uh, when we're just talking about kind of this moment in time that that's actually what's going on and it's not the like high-minded governance stuff? Sure. Uh, I, I, I think it's hard to deny if you look at the numbers that the majority of compound usage today is organic. Uh, I think it was prior to the launch of liquidity mining, but it's, as Will said, a lot of this is inorganic usage uh, purely to receive the comp token. But I think that this is a really interesting mechanism. If you even go back to Bitcoin with proof of work, right? Essentially, I think the reason people use the term liquidity mining is it's kind of like mining Bitcoin. You're doing proof of liquidity rather than proof of work. And it's also, it can be analogized to proof of stake, right? In all cases, you want people to have some costs. In this case, the opportunity cost of their capital that they are giving up in order to earn the comp token. And so that ensures that the people who are receiving the token have really, you know, put some economic value behind their acquisition of that token. Now, whether just like Bitcoin miners, whether they are long-term holders of that token or not, isn't necessarily important. It's a way of uh, fairly, you know, it doesn't mean equitably, but fairly uh, distributing this token out. I think this is a very interesting mechanism for doing so. And I think there's already been steps taken by the folks who are governing the compound protocol actively today, the folks who have received delegations or some of the early investors um, that are trying to tamp down some of the incentives so that it doesn't lead to so much inorganic usage. Uh, and there are some you know, things that I'd like to see happen to get it even to a more sustainable level. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to argue that today this is largely organic usage. Yeah, and I could add some color to that in a second. Um, but one thing that I'll highlight is that these governance mechanisms are dynamic and that you'd never know exactly how an incentive scheme is going to work in the wild when these users don't exist in a vacuum, right? They're participants in the broader DeFi and crypto ecosystems. And uh, so, so what you see happen is you have unintended effects, like, um, for example, right after the compound launch, uh, massive, massive amounts of Tether were borrowed and converted to USDC recursively um, because that was the uh, shelling point strategy um, whereby people were able to earn the most in governance rewards. Um, that dynamic pivoted towards basic attention token, uh, which to put some data on it has about $300 million in outstanding borrow at the moment, 85% of which has been resupplied uh, to the protocol by those same users, which is uh, a bit scary from a liquidity perspective. Um, and Compound has rightly so taken steps to mitigate that, um, but it's illustrative that incentives can cause unintended consequences. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like if there's any lesson we've learned in crypto, it's that when things happen, they happen quickly and uh, like kind of flare up in these big uh, ways. So yeah, I know uh, these kind of very wide pendulum swings, I feel like are part and parcel of a technology that moves so quickly and that can be programmed. It's, it is scary to watch, but I actually was so curious. So Dan, when you talked about the different measures that they're taking to kind of tamp down the incentives so that it isn't this kind of crazy inner organic activity. What are some of the proposals there? Yeah. So one of the proposals that that passed last week was to say, we're going to look at these um, tokens that are not uh, not Ethereum, not Ether, uh, and not stable coins that are on the platform. So basic attention token, the 0x token, and Augur's rep token. Um, and they all have uh, rate interest rate curves that within the compound protocol that would make them ideal for this type of uh, yield farming. And uh, they said, okay, well, if we try to nerf that and make it so that, you know, that's not the dominant strategy anymore, people are just going to rotate to these other two coins. And so uh, just there was a blanket move to say, we're going to increase the protocol's uh, reserve factor on the interest paid from believe it was like zero or maybe 10% up to 50%, which means that there is now a, a much more significant cost, not just an opportunity cost for doing this uh, farming, but there's also the cost of 50% of the interest paid. You're not paying back effectively to yourself. You're paying to uh, a reserve pool held within the the compound uh, protocol. And so that's, that's one thing to introduce real cost. The more recent governance change was saying, rather than calculating comp distribution on the basis of the amount of interest paid per asset, it's just going to be calculated on the basis of total outstanding US dollar amount borrowed per asset. So we don't have to worry about the differences in the interest rate curves across different protocols as much. Uh, it's, it's more just where is the demand. I do think this is going to flip the game on its head, uh, where rather than going for the highest uh, interest rate assets to borrow and lend, people are going to be wanting to borrow the lowest uh, interest rate asset and still lend at the the highest supply rate. So I think that's actually a more a much more healthy dynamic because it should be natural that people want to earn the most when they're lending assets and pay the least when they're supplying it. And so that helps to kind of restore that natural balance. Yeah, this reminds me about how like early on you had this tweet where you showed that people could earn more from borrowing USDT than they could lending on compound. And it, like just intuitively, that doesn't make sense. So like obviously there's something messed up there. Right, um, right. But yeah, actually, also when what you described reminds me of like whack-a-mole because it just sort of feels like people are just like the the um, governance actors are going to constantly be trying to like tweak based on what's happening. Is that just how this is going to go? Or do you ever see this reaching some kind of equilibrium? I would say that it's likely to reach an equilibrium when the value distributed is a, a much smaller percent of the assets under management. So uh, people who are participating uh, in the protocol are receiving governance rewards in a much smaller proportion than they currently are. Uh, I don't think that we're likely to find a stable equilibrium in the short term while Compound is uh, giving away half a million dollars a day in governance rights. 
And, and for example, the change that Dan alluded to where high interest rates will no longer be rewarded is likely to have ripple effects elsewhere in the ecosystem, particularly with assets like DAI, the stablecoin, which are inherently uh, supply constrained. So, yeah, actually, why don't we dive into that? Because there was um, this post that Cyrus Unessi at MakerDAO wrote where he talked about how he thought a way, a change, you know, in the way compound is paid out could just make DAI lose its dollar peg. So can you explain how what his theory was and like whether or not you think that will happen or, or what will happen there? Yeah, so I think it's a definite possibility what happens. And actually, but explain why he thought it would cause sure. it to lose its peg. Sure. I, I guess we can start with the theory. Um, it all boils down to the shape of the interest rate curves. And that essentially means what percent interest are borrowers paying lenders as a function of the total amount of assets being used from zero to 100%. And the shape of the die interest rate curve is very flat up until about 90% utilization. And so effectively what that means is that borrowers pay a relatively low rate of interest to borrow DAI, uh, which under this proposed new scheme, which is likely to go live um, tomorrow, Thursday, July 2nd, um, will incentivize DAI uh, more so than any of the other assets on the platform. And so that will have that, happened by the time this comes out. So <laughs> the audience may already know something that we don't know. But anyway, keep going. So I think Cyrus was right to point out that these exogenous factors um, could have an impact on the monetary policy that Maker uses to manage their stablecoin peg. And it's going to be uh, interesting to watch what happens. Yeah. And to, to add to, Will, your point about like, there's just a massive subsidy happening, right? Prior to uh, the launch of the, this comp distribution, Compound uh, borrowers were paying, I think it was in the neighborhood of like $1,200 a day or so in, in interest. So like that's that's how much could be earned in total across the system by lending on Compound. And now we're up to like hundreds of thousands of dollars per day in subsidies. So yeah, things are massively out of whack. And it's, it's very likely that that will uh, impact other protocols in the system, Maker and DAI specifically seem seem ripe uh, to have impact felt. Yeah. So, you know, I actually want to continue this line of thinking a little bit more, but I actually, before we do that, just want to ask a little bit more about the sustainability within Comp itself, um, because I have a whole series of questions about composability and whatever. So let's just kind of finish talking about comp. I mean, we alluded to this before, but like, do you expect that these protocols that offer these liquidity mining incentives to maintain um, their level of activity? Because the way I see it, it's sort of like how in Bitcoin, you know, people worry about whether or not the security of the network will be affected once they transition from uh, the block reward to transaction fees. And this is something that they're worrying about, and it literally won't even happen until we're all dead. So, um, comp, obviously, that distribution ends in four years. And, it, like, is there some kind of contingency plan, or do they just think, like, oh, there will be enough liquidity, we'll be fine forever after that? Or, you know, what do you guys think? Well, I, I think, actually, I the the philosophy that I've, I've heard from the Tezos community occasionally, I think, applies here. It's like, if you've got... 
good governance. You can have anything, any other feature that you want. Um, and I think for Compound, that's the case, right? The, the governors of the protocol can change the parameters. So what was literally set out when they announced a four-year schedule was something like 42, 43% of this, um, you know, what was it, 10 million, 100 million uh, comp uh, cap was going to be distributed through the system. And that was laid out as a certain number of comp per block, I believe. And what we found was that uh, blocks were going a little bit faster than was expected. And so that actually even pushed the subsidy up higher on, on a daily basis. So there was an adjustment as part of one of these other governance decisions to reduce the issuance rate. Now, there's nothing stopping the governors of this protocol from further reducing that and bringing it down to a sustainable level. Now, mm -hmm. you still have the same number of comp tokens in this supply to be distributed through this program. And so that would necessarily extend the window past the four-year mark that was initially proposed. So, you know, all of this is subject to governance. And I think it is very, very unlikely that we will see a kind of flatline issuance over four years and then seeing it drop to zero. Because as you said, like, that seems very problematic. So I would expect that the people who have some ownership in this protocol will use that ownership to have, at the very least, a smooth landing. We might even see something res resembling the Bitcoin halving. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whether it's a halving or, or you know, a smoother decay, or even just spread it out, there's essentially tail issuance. Like, who knows? It's all on the table. That's interesting. Well, so to to pull in a little bit of history on all this, um, can you describe how this all got started? And I think maybe one of the initial um, kind of like, I, I don't know, I don't even know if back then it would have been called liquidity mining or, or maybe it would have been, but when um, synthetics began uh, offering something similar with its synth ETH and ETH pool on Uniswap? Like, was that the first instance of this? And if so, can you kind of describe what happened there? But then also maybe describe, I think they wound it down. So like, and that was just like a year ago or whatever. So, you know, how did that go? And is that similar to what you're describing here? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that's the first uh, on-chain incentive program to see widespread success. But I believe the, the term liquidity mining was coined by a company named Hummingbot. Um, in reference to um, paying for orders on an order book. Um, but in the case of synthetics, they had massive success incentivizing uh, their one-to-one -one peg of their synthetic assets to real assets by subsidizing people who were willing to put both of those assets into a liquidity pool with their protocol's native token. And Robert from Compound has said as much that it was an inspiration to, to Compound Labs um, and the rest of the um, stakeholders in the ecosystem when designing their process. Um, and, you know, Dan, this goes back to what you alluded to in your, your aquaponic yield farming article, but all of these protocols are interconnected. And now that many other liquidity pools are incentivizing liquidity, there's no need for synthetics to, to subsidize that synthetic ETH and ETH pool anymore. Other protocols are doing it for them, like Balancer. Oh, okay. So that's why they wound that down. So it like didn't cause them any problems or anything. Correct. They do have an incentivized pool on a, another platform called Curve, which is optimized for stable pairs. 
but the original incentive has been wound down. Okay. And then just to also now ask a little bit more about governance, like, do we have any sense of what percentage of these, um, I mean, okay, like amongst the people that have comp, there's probably two groups. There's like the speculators and then the people who are actually interested in governance. And I'm curious to know, like what percentage, you know, each group makes of the total pool and um, whether or not there's overlap, like whether or not you sense that this speculative mania is actually going to lead toward people getting interested in governance, or is it just like, you know, you're going to give away a bunch of comp and then eventually through trading, it will find its way to people interested in governance. I, I, I suspect it's it's more the latter that like eventually through trading, it finds its way to, into the hands of people who are interested in governance. Um, one of the nice things about the protocol, though, and, and I know the compound team put a lot of thought into this is um, to the delegation function. So, you know, if you want to have your voice heard and you want to, you know, you feel pride in owning some comp or, or you know, want to um, have some piece of it over the long term, you don't have to actively be involved in making every decision yourself. You can delegate the voting power from your comp tokens to somebody else. And so, for example, um, IDEO Collab Ventures is, uh, you know, a, a delegate for comp. We don't actually hold any comp as a fund at this time, um, but we have multiple portfolio companies, including Instadap and Pool Together, that use Compound very heavily. And so we participate in the governance process through comp that's been delegated to us because we want to you know, protect their interests and the interests of other uh, startups and protocols that may build on comp in the future. And we also think that it's just an incredibly important player in the ecosystem. And so we are learning a lot through participating in this governance process. Um, and we're learning things that that we are then able to share those lessons with other companies in our portfolio as they look to roll out their own governance platforms. Oh, and just to clarify some facts, because I'm not sure I fully understood that. So you guys don't personally own comp, but people can delegate to you and you guys vote? Yes. Okay, got correct. it. Super, yep. super interesting. And Will, it looks like you were going to say something? The only thing that I have to add to that is that given how early we are in the lifetime distribution of these assets, uh, most of the circulating supply is owned by team members and key stakeholders like um, venture capitalists. And so the small amount of comp that is circulating beyond those communities uh, is most likely in the hands of speculators at this point in time. But as more and more assets get issued, uh, people who are interested in the long-term future of governance, whether those be large users of the protocol or people who see it as systemically important to the ecosystem are likely to control a larger and larger fraction of the supply. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe this mechanism will work out the way that they hoped. Um, we'll see. You know, it would be nice. It would be nice if that did happen. Um, but now let's talk about something that we also, again, alluded to earlier. It's amazing how quickly, uh, the comp token reached like a pretty, um, high market cap on coin market cap. Uh, when I did the research, it was 23 on coin market cap, but I actually wasn't able to check it right before we spoke. Um, but currently the market cap is around 2 billion. Uh, however, the total value locked in it is 600 million. So what do you guys think? Does that mean that compound is overvalued or like how do we determine a deep, uh, evaluation in DeFi? Well, you're the numbers guy. I want to give it a shot. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, 
<laughs> so the interesting thing about this is that we have a positive feedback loop here. The more the governance rights are valued, um, the more people are going to put their assets into compound in order to capture a piece of them. And the more assets that are in compound, the more valuable those governance rights are. So I think we're in, in early days in terms of reaching an equilibrium price, but the only rational way that I've seen to value governance rights is uh, to assume that those governance rights are likely to eventually result in fee capture from the protocol um, and then to do a discounted cash flow analysis. Wait, so just so I understand, like meaning that people are rewarded for, for good governance? So, so anytime that people have full control over the protocol, you have to assume that there is a non-zero probability that they will vote themselves a revenue share at some point in the future and that those cash flows will have value. Okay. Okay. But so then based on that, when you look at the activity going on, like, you know, just do you feel like it's going to trend in that direction or? I would say Dan is probably the expert here. <laughs> Fair play. Um, yeah. So I, I think, I think Will's analysis is spot on, right? That's, that's how you would likely construct some sort of valuation model uh, reasonably around this. Uh, what the likelihood is, uh, what the probability is that you assign to there ever being some uh, kind of capture on the, the value flowing through the protocol is, is a big piece of this. Um, but, you know, we'll explain the game that, you know, as more assets are in there, we expect the future value to go up. Um, so I guess we don't know where it's going to end up. It, it, as Will mentioned, there's not a lot of uh, kind of float out there in terms of like new, newly received comp that, you know, presumably it's, you know, short-term speculators potentially who are trying to get their hands on this and, and there's not a lot to be traded there. So this is going to take a little while to get to some kind of stable price discovery, whether that will ultimately net out significantly above or below where it's trading today. I don't know if, if I did, I would be making a lot of moves right now and, and <laughs> make a lot of money. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting to watch. Um, I, I think there are certainly ways you can put together a model that say the current valuation is very reasonable. There's ways you can say it's very rich. Um, it, it's all based on your assumption of how much money do you ultimately see uh, flowing through the protocol? How much do you think uh, can reasonably be captured by the governance token holders? And what probability do you assign to the governance token holders eventually choosing to capture some of that value? All right. So the only last question I want to ask uh, that's kind of like really focused just on what's happening here is um, I was just looking at how, um, you know, you, there are these other apps, like you mentioned, InstaDap, where um, it, it just makes it much easier for you to um, basically chase these yields through smart contracts. And I just wondered, like, as more people do things like that, that's just going to further what we were talking about, what that would cause these wild swings in the values of the assets. So like, doesn't that make governance like so much harder? And, and do you predict that that will be a consequence of, of things like that? Because I just wonder, like, how, how can you control something like that where everything's just programmed to just always go after the highest yield and everybody's glomming onto, I don't know. It just, 
you know, because like, I guess right now the, the in trading, the way you make money is like you're ahead of the curve or whatever. And you kind of like have your own little niche. But just if everybody's doing it with these smart contracts, I, I kind of I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> so the, the, the yield farmers are going to move their assets from protocol to protocol in search of the highest short term returns. But some liquidity is sticky. For example, um, Tether was the favorite of the yield farmers. And you know there were $300 million worth of Tether that were borrowed at one point just a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but there are still about $50 million of Tether borrowed uh, on Compound, even though that is no longer the optimal strategy, which is far, far in excess of the less than $1 million that was borrowed before the start of this liquidity mining initiative. So oh, wow. liquid, some liquidity will be sticky. Okay, that's impressive. Yeah, I think you know we've we've talked a little bit about the finding a natural equilibrium within a protocol like Compound. I think there's also going to be a process of finding a natural equilibrium across the broader ecosystem, because to the extent that that these protocols um, are composable, and as people are looking to farm yield across multiple protocols, you know the uh, subsidy being too high compared to natural demand on one protocol or too low on another is going to have ripple effects uh, across these other protocols. And so I think it's going to take significant time to get there. Uh, I think having these big numbers, I don't, I don't think it was actually a mistake to launch uh, comp uh, this comp distribution in the way that it was, because I think that the hype that is generated is good, right? Uh, we do, it's not sustainable, but it got a lot of interest. It showed people the power of these incentives, and now it actually gave the both people involved in Compound and people involved in other protocols uh, a real clear incentive to figure out a better way to incentivize their users and get this to a more sustainable state. Um, I think what what's interesting, if you think about it, you know, going back to the model Will laid out, is um, you're you're valuing these things. If you're trying to do a valuation um, on these things, uh, then you you should be valuing them, looking at uh, discounting back potential future cash flows. And in that sense, what you're doing is you're just kind of shifting those future cash flows to the present as a way of subsidizing user acquisition and uh, kind of asset liquidity acquisition within the protocol. And so that's not dissimilar from PayPal in the early days and, and many other consumer apps, right? Paying you a referral bonus um, if you bring a friend on board or paying new users to sign up. Um, the difference is they've got this um, asset that has use in terms of being able to make this a decentralized protocol and people are projecting value on it um, according to this model. Uh, and they're just using that and saying, hey, rather than us needing to go out to VCs and raise $10 million, $100 million to pay to subsidize growth, you know, we're just going to go direct to the users. They can see where this is potentially going and they'll value owning a piece of it. So I think it's actually really cool to then go directly to the users of the protocol who believe in it and they're providing the subsidy directly rather than having to play a game of raising capital through VCs to pay people in US dollars. I couldn't agree more, but um, Laura, I think we missed 
addressing your point about Instadap's tools, making it easier for people to pursue these inorganic strategies. Um, and I think that what Instadap does is provide a better user experience and what people choose to leverage that user experience for um, is something that was already possible within the protocol. And if it demonstrates an issue, it's going to come to the surface sooner and the team can iterate quicker in the case of Compound. So I don't see it as an issue at all. And in fact, I, I see it as a net positive. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's talk um, a little bit more about actually a number of these issues, including discounted cash flow and, um, and then we're going to get into like things like security and composability um, in a second. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Dan Ilitzer and Will Price. All right. Gosh, I feel like we could do this forever because there's just so much to discuss. But I actually wanted to go back to the discounted cash flow thing that you guys described. Can, so can you just walk through what that looks like for something like Comp? Yeah. So um, discounted cash flows generally, um, you need to start with something that's called a, a hurdle rate or um an internal rate of return. And that's basically what is the opportunity cost of your capital? So a dollar today is worth more than a dollar 10 years in the future. And then you take that discounted rate and you apply it to um, the cash flows that you expect to receive over time. And then you take what's called the net present value of that. Um, and that's the rational current valuation for the protocol governance. But like, but so what you're doing is you're kind of projecting what comp should be worth at some point in the future and comparing it to what it's worth now? Is that what you're doing? It's it's less about what comp is worth at some point in the future and more about what cash flows will comp generate for you at all points in the future. And then trying to collapse that down to what is that series of cash flows worth to me today? Oh, okay. And and that would be generated by what? Like when you engage in governance and are rewarded in some fashion or? Yeah. I mean, any way that the protocol can capture value um, could be um, valued in this way. And it's really up in the air. And, and these are not trivial assumptions to make. Oh, no wonder. Yeah. I Yeah. Because, yeah, just... I could totally imagine different people coming up with wildly different valuations and some making it seem good and some making it seem bad because the assumptions are just way too unknown at this point. So Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's talk about security because um, I think that's a, a huge concern at this point. We've seen with you know everything, even just as far back as the DAO, but then also you know these recent DeFi hacks with like Synthetics and BZX and LendFMe, and it, it, when you combine all that with like the interoperability of these protocols, um, I'm just curious for you guys when you think about security, like what gives you most cause for concern? 
most cause for concern. Um, I would say it's uh, the fact that we are moving so fast in developing new things and there is so much money at stake. And so when people see these big numbers, um, you know, it, it's natural to get a little greedy and be like, I, I want to try to get a piece of that. And I don't think that most people are able to understand the level of risk that is inherent in some of these protocols. I think one of the reasons why I'm more comfortable with compounds being the place where we're, we're running this first experiment uh, in, in how these types of systems work is the level of diligence that the compound team has applied in building their protocol, the number of audits they've done, their internal processes. They've just really put security front and center. And uh, I think that the same cannot be said for a lot of other teams in the space, not saying that any of them have any um, you know, bad intentions, right? Uh, but you know, from what I've seen of the compound team and what they've written publicly, and Robert's talked about publicly in terms of their processes, they just take this with a, a very different level of seriousness than a lot of the teams in the ecosystem. Um, and and you know, they had advantages of Robert being a, a very experienced founder and being able to raise capital and having the resources to to dedicate towards this and. It's understandable that if you you know you're a, an early stage team and you know you've raised nothing or maybe you've raised a few hundred thousand dollars, um, it, it's really hard to go through all the same steps because it does mean that you're you're moving slower and you're having more expense. Um, but when you start layering all of these different systems together and they they haven't um, all applied that same level of diligence, yeah, you're going to find edge cases and thing in places where things break and uh, real money can be lost. Compound has taken the approach of whitelisting assets that have been thoroughly vetted, which reduces my level of concern, which is you know still reasonable given the amount of money at stake. Um, there are uh, protocols like Nexus Mutual and Open, which provide um, insurance in the form of um, a mutual backing or in the form of options, which um, can give users some peace of mind. So I'm excited for those protocols to grow. So let's talk about one of the recent attacks, which was on Balancer, which is, um, I guess, like an an automated market maker. Uh, but can you explain what happened there, uh, just so people can understand, like how you know one way in which people can lose money? Um, and and actually, also, it wasn't even clear to me. Well, j just explain what happened with Balancer, and then I'll ask you my next question. Will, do you Are you wanna... referring to the deflationary token? Yeah, incident? where yeah, yeah five hundred thousand dollars got lost in Balancer. Yeah, so what happened was there were two assets in particular that had uh, deflationary mechanisms, and that that essentially means that the supply of the token could be reduced, um, and that's not a standard ERC twenty token feature. Yeah, and it was almost like a recursive call type thing in the way where they just did a transaction over and over again, and it was draining small amounts because one side accounted for the fee and then the other side didn't. And so then at the end, after you had done it a number of times, one side of it was drained, but then the other side of the contract didn't know it was that asset was drained. 
Yeah, yeah. Essentially, they used a flash loan to recursively cycle through, like you mentioned. I think there were something like 600 event logs in that transaction, which is insane. Um, but they were able to drain the assets from the pool. Um, and, you know, Balancer was aware that uh, this sort of uh, mechanism wouldn't play nice with their pool, but uh, I don't think they were aware the extent to which it could be exploited via things like flash loans. Okay. Yeah. So, go ahead. And they, they, they had been alerted to the existence of this type of vulnerability um, by, by somebody external from, uh, I think it was the Hex Capital. Um, and, and they they noted that it was an issue, but they hadn't realized, as Will said, that like flash loans could be utilized in this way to like really amp up the danger. Um, and, you know, they, they acknowledged their mistake. I think, you know, they didn't handle the initial bug report well in terms of like they'd kind of dismissed it. But uh, when when this, you know, exploit happens, they fully owned up to their mistake and, and said they should have been more more diligent around this. Um, and they're kind of covering losses for for people in those particular pools um, based on, you know, they felt like this kind of, you know, they, they took some responsibility for it. But as Will said, this is a permissionless protocol and people can put any assets they want into it. And the reason why those assets were there and why there was so much of them was people were trying to uh, do liquidity mining or yield farming on Balancer's BAL token. And so uh, in some ways, I think it's, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Um, don't, if, you, if you're, if you're going to try to take advantage of um kind of edge cases in the system or or take advantage of, of some rules that aren't really in the spirit with which these programs have been laid out, then it's it's really buyer beware. Um and and so don't use a permissionless protocol um with some non-standard token uh and expect that somebody else is watching out for you. Um all right. Well, yeah. So this was actually my question because I just wanted to make sure I understood it. So um, like when I was reading the articles on this, it was saying things like Balancer lost $500,000, but it was basically all the different providers of liquidity in the various tokens that were drained. Those were the people that lost money. And I'm assuming that they lost money in proportion to um, their holdings within the pool. Is that yes? Is that's that exactly it? correct. Okay. Yeah, but wow. just just that pool, right? So it wasn't it wasn't people who had funds in other balancer pools. It was limited just to those who had chosen to provide liquidity into that pool with these weird deflationary assets. And then you were saying that balancer was making them whole somehow, or what was there? Yeah. So balancer, um, because that they were aware that this was an issue. And because even though their protocol is permissionless, they didn't uh, flag or somehow disable these pools in their UI, ba Balancer Labs made the choice to make these liquidity providers whole. Wow. Okay. It, it reminds me of like how Coinbase did that with the ETH flash crash. Um, but anyway, okay. So um, I feel like for a number of these, uh, w like one of the main vectors of attack really is uh, taking advantage of the composability, right? It's like in this case with these deflationary tokens that shouldn't have been used on Balancer or um, like with the BZX 
um, attacks, you know, that was using multiple different protocols in different ways. Um, the LendFMe one was about the ERC-777 token being used where it shouldn't have. Um, and I mean, I think one thing that's really fascinating is that all these attacks usually indicate that the hacker has like extremely sophisticated knowledge of multiple DeFi protocols. <laughs> I, I shouldn't like, I, I like, it's one of those weird things, like when you see it happen, like you're almost like impressed, you know, and, and obviously they're doing it for bad purposes. So, um, however, so what I wanted to, to say was just like, if DeFi grows beyond this small, small ecosystem now in which most everyone kind of knows each other and like can basically kind of keep up on developments. I mean, even at this point where, like, for instance, with LendFMe, that attack was known about like the year before and the team still didn't do things to prevent that. So and that's like I said, when when the, and that was even when the DeFi space was even smaller than now. So, like, how do you think teams will be able to keep their protocol secure in the future? Like, you know, I was brainstorming. I was like, should there be some like standards body? But then I was like, that will move so slow compared to DeFi like that. That will never work. So I don't know. What are are people talking about this? Yeah, it's certainly a, a topic of discussion. And I think, as Will pointed out, there's a difference between a protocol like Compound that requires assets be whitelisted for inclusion and they go through a, a pretty strict vetting process. You know, Maker does a, a similar thing. And protocols like Balancer or Uniswap, where anybody can use any asset in there. Um, and so it, it has a very different risk profile as a result. Um, I, I think you're asking a great question, though, because as you pointed out with like the Lend of Me issue with the 777s, um, it, a lot of these attacks are known issues, right? They were previously reported in, in that case, like even there was like a, an example, like code snippet that, that could be used. Um, this is pretty low hanging fruit right now. And so, uh, yes, we should be scared about what happens when we get past the low hanging fruit and we have an even more interconnected system. And then there are really sophisticated attacks that haven't been reported yet that are, you know, zero day attacks, essentially. Um, like what happens then? It, it's it's very um, it's very concerning. Uh, we're, we're we're building what we hope is new global financial infrastructure here, and I think we need to, as an industry, just step up the level of diligence and care uh, that we're applying to the creation and use of these protocols. But when you say that, what does that mean? That like the security teams for each of these protocols has to get bigger or like, what does that look like? I don't think that in the long term we can rely on the end user to be a, a good judge of the technical aptitude and, and security rigor uh, engaged in by each team. And so I mentioned insurance earlier. I really think that uh, a wider adoption of insurance, insurance is, is likely to be the solution here, not in terms of eliminating the risk, but in terms of offloading it to people better equipped to assess it. Hmm. Yeah, that's one thing. I think another, um, I know um, my friend Richard Burton has, has been talking about going to like, um, kind of like these NASA, like formal verification workshops and stuff and like getting some like little rocket scientists into the field and like people who can uh, really formally verify some of this code. I know formal verification is something that a, a few teams have 
pursued to some degree, but I think it just needs to be a much more uh, common practice. Uh, I think, you know, there, there are some fantastic teams that conduct audits on smart contracts. Um, but, you know, as good as they are, you can never say like, oh, it's been audited, so it's safe. Um, there, there's only so much you can do within the scope of an audit. Um, but there is some elements of these auditors are paid by the teams uh, that are doing the development, and they write, you know, they're, I think very honest reports. But there's some element of they can't come out and say this is a flaming pile of garbage um, <laughs> when somebody's like paid them to give the report. So they need to we can be a very very plain, very you know dry technical language. And I think that there is a need as investors like like you know myself and others are utilizing these protocols more um, to have them start to step up and pay for additional security reviews. Um, where it's saying like, don't sugarcoat it, right? If I'm going to put, you know, millions of dollars in funds that have been entrusted to me into some of these protocols, um, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting it straight from the experts uh, as to, you know, would they trust their own money? Do they think it's safe? Yeah, I don't know if you listened to the episode I did with um, Dan from Trail of Bits. I'm just blanking yeah. on his last name. And at Taylor Dan Guido, Monahan, yeah. Dan Guido yeah. yeah, and Taylor Monahan of yep. My Crypto. Um, but yeah, we talked about the Hedgic um, attack, and that was definitely the subtext of that conversation. You know, I was asking uh, Dan about some of the ways in which the Hedgic um the team didn't seem fully professional and you know why they even took them on as clients. Um, and he said, Oh, you know, we've worked with all these anonymous people before with weird usernames and weird quirks. But, um, but yeah, he definitely implied that it was truly uh, not, you know, not work that was ready to go and um, that people mistook the idea that they'd been audited as like a rubber stamp of approval. Um but anyway, okay, so we're we're kind of running out of time, and I want to ask um, a few other things. So in this period that we've seen the yield farming craze take off, why do you think we haven't really seen the price of Ethereum rise? That is the question on, on everybody's mind. I think uh, right now people are very interested about the uh, potential of these governance tokens and other DeFi assets. And that um, people who might otherwise be investing in ETH are migrating more of their capital into these areas um, and viewing ETH uh, potentially more as uh, a way to pay for transaction fees and, and nothing else. Um, I, I actually think that in the long run, um, this yield farming meme is going to be very good for Ethereum, given that a central tenet of ETH 2.0 is staking, whereby you lock up your capital in return for yield in an analogous manner to what's happening right now on compound imbalance rate. Yeah, that makes sense. But it is kind of curious that, um, I don't know, Dan, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I also think that, you know, it's a very positive sign for the Ethereum ecosystem uh, and, and, you know, for, for either as an asset. That said, you know, if we, I, I believe we're at the beginning of a, a very, you know, large, uh, kind of run up and and, and activity and and like the valuations and such in the DeFi space and um, I'm super excited about many of the new protocols that I, I'm seeing that are 
getting ready to come into market or just starting to to grow. Uh, if we do see this like bull run in DeFi and Ether and Bitcoin also likely don't go along for the ride, that's going to force a lot of people to to check some of their their prior assumptions. Um, I I my expectation is that at some point we will see these base assets um, along for the ride and it, for, for various reasons. But if we don't, um, I don't I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I think if if there is real activity happening in DeFi, if there's real value being created that starts to be more organic, then I'm still going to be hugely excited about the potential in this space. Um, but you know, yes, as, as someone who holds some of those assets, it would be great to see them go along for the ride. Well, wait, totally. so just I'm so curious earlier when you said, like, what if we see a bull run in DeFi, but Bitcoin and Ether don't go along for the ride? Um, do you literally mean just like, you know, all these different governance tokens in DeFi, the, the ones that are offered as incentives for a liquidity mining that we would see those take off, but that like maybe Ether... Um, wooden and then maybe Bitcoin because it's sort of like a different ecosystem just would lag because wouldn't don't you wouldn't you see people buying Bitcoin and Ether to get into the ecosystem or? Well, I think it's it's very different from, you know, in 2017 with the ICO boom, right? Um, Ether was money. <laughs> that was like the way, the way that you could like kind of pay into these ICOs and participate. And so it created a lot of demand for Ether um, to just use the, the killer use case of these ICOs. If today the, the killer use case is yield farming or, or use of these DeFi protocols, we now have um, widely adopted stable coins. And so people mm. already think of stable coins as money. They have the ability to um, expand and contract the supply based on people just literally depositing dollars and minting more of them. Um, so uh, it doesn't necessarily put the same pressure of demand on Ether specifically that the ICO boom did. I do think there is a lot of value in having a uh, kind of neutral platform native um, permissionless asset, right? That is not centrally controlled in any way. I think that is very valuable. I, I do think that is a, a real strength for Ether and, and also a real strength for Bitcoin. Uh, but it, it's not a, as much of a direct need to force um, you know millions or, or billions of dollars in value into that one asset to watch the ecosystem grow in the way that there was in 2017. I will say, though, that uh, if we do see a DeFi bull run, we will stress test and therefore trust many of these nascent financial primitives even more and ask more of them plug into each other. And we have a complex ecosystem forming that raises the moats for Ethereum and, and creates an almost insurpassable network effect. Oh, interesting. Well, OK, so I was going to ask you because like gas fees have about kind of roughly maybe quadrupled or quintupled since the beginning of the year. And I see people complaining about the the gas fees when they're trying to do their yield farming trades. So, um, you know, obviously I feel like this is related to scaling issues. So I just wondered, like, you know, do people have concern that Ethereum will not scale quickly enough uh, to meet this demand for yield farming or or whatever might whatever else might happen on DeFi? And like, do you feel like there's a risk that this activity could move to some other blockchain? I think there is concern. I don't necessarily think that there is a risk. Um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, miners increased the block gas limit by about 20%, which basically means there's 20% more capacity on Ethereum. But we didn't really see gas fees drop. So to me, that says right now there's you know infinite demand for DeFi, and DeFi wants to be on Ethereum because that's where the liquidity is. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a problem to have fees at the current level right now for where the ecosystem is. I think it for non-DeFi use cases, it may be pretty problematic um, because these DeFi use cases, you can like directly say, yes, I'm willing to spend $5 in gas because I'm going to make $50 on the trade. Um, you know, for, you know, crypto kitties type use cases and stuff, it might, it might be harder right now. That said, um, you know, we're, we've, we've backed a, a team called Optimism, which is working on an optimistic rollup solution for scaling. There's a number of other very strong teams working on their own layer two scaling solutions. Um, you know, hopefully we see ETH2 at, at some point um, in the not too distant future. Um, but there's, there's all these different things. And I think a lot of these layer two solutions are all starting to come to market around the same time. And so I think there's going to be a really interesting evolution to watch out there. I, I think that anybody who spent significant time um, looking at these blockchain networks and understanding some elements of the kind of limitations on their growth in, in various ways almost inevitably comes to the conclusion that we're going to see in the end a lot more activity happening through layer two um, systems than directly on layer one. And, and it'll all be anchored back to layer one, but you, you can't do everything on chain on layer one. And so I think it's it's going to be great timing to see some of these really viable layer two solutions coming to market just as we're hitting this inflection point uh, with demand where people want to be having a lot more transaction volume and a lot more complex transaction volume. Wait, and just just so I understand, like you even think that will be the case that a lot of activity will shift to layer two, even on um, ETH2, where it's a sharded. Chunk. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, as Will said, right, we just bumped capacity 20 percent and didn't notice difference in, in, in gas prices, I, I think. And the ecosystem is so it's tiny today. Right. Like, you know, a successful like DeFi protocol has thousands of users, like probably not even tens of thousands of users today. <laughs> If we really want to scale this to billions of people, which I hope we all do, uh, then yeah, there's no way you can do this all on L1. Right. Yeah. Well, so speaking of layer ones, um, I did see that Tom Shaughnessy of Delphi Digital tweeted that he thought DeFi tokens would end up pushing out what he called ghost layer ones out of the top 10, like XRP, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, EOS, Bitcoin, Satoshi's Vision, Tron, Stellar, which disclosure is a sponsor of my shows. And so he was saying that he felt like that you know, these were just going to be overtaken by DeFi tokens. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Or just from what you were describing, it almost sounded like you were saying that Ethereum will become more like the DeFi chain and some of the other applications applications will shift to other layer ones. So I think it comes back to network effects. But one thing that makes me bullish on Ethereum in particular is that these layer twos can be optimized for different purposes. Right now, we have um, a layer two payment solution in Loopring live on chain today. We have teams like Optimism working on fully fledged EVM execution environments where you can preserve DeFi composability. So uh, I do think that there's going to be a compelling reason for, for projects, regardless of their domain, uh, to remain on a fully interoperable system. 
Okay. Well, let's also now just talk about another really important layer one, which is Bitcoin. So now there's 11,000 Bitcoin on Ethereum um, and it's about a hundred million dollars worth. Yeah. yeah. It's in things like wrapped Bitcoin, REN BTC, IMBTC. And I mean, that's, it's like a pretty significant increase from the end of March when there was maybe like about 1500 BTC. So why, what do you like think is the significance of that? Like, why do you think we're seeing this? Like, could it put, pose any potential dangers to Bitcoin, which is to my mind, you know, really different because it's all about like security and conservatism. You know, what do you make of this? Well, you know, as, as somebody who has been focused on Bitcoin for, for a long time and, and still is very bullish on Bitcoin, um, I, I I think it's great seeing Bitcoin come over. I'm, I'm excited about Bitcoin and I'm excited about DeFi. So if I can use my Bitcoin in DeFi, like, great, I get the best of both worlds. Um, that said, I do think that there is an extreme scenario, right? Let's say that DeFi and, and Ethereum are hugely successful and people want to use their Bitcoin in DeFi applications. If you get the majority of economic activity um, from Bitcoin happening on top of Ethereum, that does raise some concerns for Bitcoin security model because there will not be transaction fees um, or as many transaction fees uh, required to support that. I don't think that... Um, we're likely to approach a level of concern for that, like in 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 the next few years. Um, who knows? Uh, it is an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on. I'm I'm very you know excited about Bitcoin's future, regardless. Uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly a dynamic that I don't think a lot of people who've been focused on Bitcoin um, have necessarily like considered how extreme states might play out. Yeah, totally. but, yeah, but on the flip side, I would say bringing Bitcoin to DeFi is like probably going to be really good for DeFi because there's so much more money in Bitcoin. Economic bandwidth, right? Yeah, economic bandwidth. Yeah. And it will. What were you going to say? Well, I agree that there are a lot of Bitcoin holders watching um, all of the yield farming happening in DeFi with with a lot of interest. But but one thing that's particularly interesting is the various flavors of Bitcoin that we have on Ethereum. So we have custodial solutions like Rat Bitcoin, we have synthetics like SBTC, and we have non-decentralized uh, versions like RenBTC. And users who who might want to on-ramp without KYC could could use Ren Bitcoin, but they might not be comfortable with the risks of holding Ren Bitcoin. So they could then swap for one of these other forms. Um, so I think the the plethora of different types is is beneficial for the ecosystem as well. And it, do you have any particular ones that you think are more likely to take off than others? That's a good question. I, I think in the short term, wrapped Bitcoin has many more integrations with with DeFi projects, and so it ha- probably has the most short term potential. But in in the long run, I think it's anybody's guess. And can you just remind me, that's the one I think BitGo custodies that and it's somehow through Kyber or what, what are the details on that again? I'm a bit fuzzy on the details, but I know BitGo is the custodian. BitGo's the custodian. custodian yeah, there's a number of different kind of merchants who are part of the, the consortium there who have the ability to uh, interact with BitGo to kind of issue new uh, wrapped Bitcoin. Okay. All right. Well, we're over time, but because this is just so fascinating, I was also just curious to know, like, where do you guys think that yield that this yield farming trend will go next? 
Well, uh, I, I think that right now, um, I, I just read a piece recently uh, that I called aquaponic yield farming. Um, the idea being that aquaponic systems involve the combination of growing plants out of water with uh, having fish uh, in that water. So you're farming fish. The uh, waste from the fish is going to fertilize the plants and um, you know plants help clean the water for the fish. Uh, so it's a, it's a great system. And, and um, we're seeing similar things start to emerge. Will mentions the kind of different flavors of Bitcoin. There is now this uh, different flavor of Bitcoin pool on Curve, which is uh, an AMM uh, optimized for stable value assets. Um, and uh, so people are yield farming uh, from the uh, upcoming Curve token. They're uh, yield farming for, uh, I believe, Balancer. And then uh, Synthetics and Ren have also added like, their own rewards on top of this too so people are kind of like mixing these things together and i, and I think it's it's very interesting people are going to try to stack their yield across multiple protocols um, but i think ultimately where it might get interesting is rather than stacking protocols um right now we're in a very you know blue ocean space but as it gets more you know red ocean where where there's not as much you know just fresh opportunity to go for these protocols may start to encroach on each other's territory and we may end up with the development of what I've called prime brokerage protocols, where you're trying to, under the roof of a single protocol, allow for exchange and you know borrowing and lending and creation of options and futures and other things all under one roof. Um, so you know we'll we'll see. I think that would be something that will take many years to to lead to that point, but stuff moves fast. So who knows? Very fast. It would certainly be very interesting to, example, have, um, you know, AMM pool shares be more widely accepted as collateral to allow OTC deals with your collateral on a system like Compound. Um, so the prime brokerage idea is definitely an interesting one. Huh. Um, right. In terms of yield stacking, uh, I will say that we are building a complex ecosystem. Complexity is emergent, and it is very, very hard to predict where things will go. Are you saying there may be some risk? <laughs> I'm saying that we don't know the future yet. Uh -huh. <laughs> there may be some risk. Well, yeah. yeah, I think there is a lot of risk. Yes, uh, yes. As unfortunately, some people in Balancer found out this week or last week or whenever that was. All right. Um, so where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at D.Elitzer um, and uh, ideocolab.com slash ventures uh, is for our, our team, Ideocolab Ventures. I'm on Twitter as well. You can find me at Will double underscore price. And to learn more about Flipside, you can visit FlipsideCrypto.com. Perfect. All right. Well, this has been so fun. Thank you both for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dan and Will, check out the show notes inside your podcast player and also on YouTube because we're now on YouTube. And don't forget, that's also where you can watch video recordings of the podcast on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.